In her book, Got Your Attention, author Sam Horn promises to tell you, quote, how to create intrigue and connect with anyone. The publisher's description says this, Sam Horn explores what it takes to really connect with others and communicate clearly and compellingly. The book apparently points out, and I verified this from a second source, but the researchers have found that human beings now have, scientifically speaking, a shorter attention span than goldfish. When they, when they hook up EKGs to the brains and check waves and all, whatever they do, uh, goldfish have an attention span of nine seconds. Human beings have an attention span of eight seconds. It didn't used to be that way. It's only in the last few years that that's uh, happened. I'm sure it has nothing to do with these, but it's fine. So anyway, they wrote this book, right? Got your attention. And the book attempts to help you earn the interest, trust, and buy-in of others. The founder of Travelocity endorses the book and says the book shows how to quickly win respect so people are motivated to listen. Another entrepreneur and philanthropist said this, this book gives him powerful insights on how to build a movement that lasts. Interesting. Attention, trust, clear communication, building a movement that lasts. All of those are good things, and all of those things were happening in the book of Acts without the use of this book. What we've been reading in chapter 5 the last few weeks is really very similar to what we read already in chapter 2. It's sort of a repeat. You, if you were listening to it on audiobook, you might think that uh, your record had skipped and fallen back to chapter 2. But there after Pentecost, many were believing, signs and wonders were being performed by the apostles. Now we get to chapter 5, the same thing is happening, but even more people are being saved. The miracles are still abundant, and we're going to find now that Jerusalem is no longer big enough to contain the work of God. Surrounding towns are getting word of what was happening as the gospel began traveling out of the city and on down the road. Throughout all of this, in a passage full of power and miracles and dramatic revival and the unstoppable work of God, I'm struck by the fact, or at least by the, what appears to be a very passivity of the apostles. They just seem really passive the whole time. Now, don't get me wrong. They're busy. They're not loafing around. They're ministering. They're being faithful. They're preaching. They're devoted. But no matter what's going on around them, they seem completely laid back, whether they're in prayer or working a miracle, whether they're in a jail cell or watching thousands of people get saved at once. They just keep doing the same thing. It's almost nonchalant the way that they're acting. And if Acts 2 through 5 were happening today in our midst, and we were sort of behaving the way that we see the apostles behaving in these chapters, I imagine there would be someone who would pull them aside and say, hey, you're not taking full advantage of these once-in-a-lifetime opportunities here. You need to leverage your influence. You need to make some moves. It's time to enter phase two. What's next? Yet consistently, we see the apostles not working out some ambitious plan. This has been a theme that's cropped up a few times in our studies already. It seems pretty clear that the apostles, the 12, had no plan. They, their plan was, we're going to hang out and just follow the Lord and be Christians, and whatever happens is happening, and we're going to respond as Christians. They're not working out a plan. They have no plan of attack. They have no communications director. They have no, you know, PR person. They have no plan that they're working out, even while all of these things are happening all around them. 
Consistently, we see that. There's been no strategy, strategy sessions. There's been no market research. There's been no restructuring to maximize team effectiveness, no media blitz, no anything like that. During this historic period, what should they have been doing? Well, we're reading about what they did, and we're not going to criticize it. So here's what's the more important question. As members of the church ourselves who are now to continue the work that God uh, began in the book of Acts, we're to continue that work around the world throughout our lives, what should you and I be doing? That is the question when it comes to our part in God's work, right? The problem is that we cannot predict what is going to happen in our own lives. We can't predict what's going to happen in the world or even the community directly around us. We know the big picture of what God is going to accomplish in this world, right? He's explained, you know, his purposes for the world. He's explained the uh, prophetic plan for the world at large. We understand that as we study his word. But as far as what am I supposed to be doing as a Christian, that's an important question. That's not always quite as easy to answer. Uh, We don't know whether we have five years or five days left in his service. We just don't know. We don't know what opportunities might present themselves to us today or tomorrow or a week from now. We don't know if God might do something truly unusual in our midst as individuals or in our church or in our community. We hope and we pray and we invite him to do great things. We're all for that, but we simply don't know. And we don't know what's going to happen in the world around us. Listen, we can't predict whether tomorrow Hanford is going to become the next Silicon Valley or the next Sandy Hook, right? Or if it's just going to stay... Same old Hanford. We just don't know. There's no way for us to know. What we do know is how to walk faithfully in a world that is completely unpredictable, obeying a God who does not always work in a predictable way. I hope that that comes out as you read through the book of Acts, that God is not predictable in the way that he accomplishes some of his work. We can't anticipate all of the things that he's going to do. Now, he's revealed a lot to us about his nature, about his character, about the way that he likes to do things. But as far as your specific life goes, your service to your king, it's not always predictable. You can't always say, well, I know what the Lord's going to do through my life tomorrow, and so I'm ready for that. I'm going to put on the right hat tomorrow because this is what's going to happen, and God will only work in this particular way. That's not how God is. And so we walk faithfully by obeying what God has revealed and by following in the calling he has given us. What God has done is given us callings, right? That's the the term we use in the church for the commands that God has given us and the special assignments that he gives us as individuals. In Ephesians, it talks about the good works that God has set before you to do and that you're to discover them and walk in them, your calling. And so what has God called you to do? What has God called me to do? And, and the flip side of that, of course, is what hasn't God called you to do? That's the question. It's not what do I think God sh- should do through our church or through my life? After all, some of the worst mistakes made in the lives of God's people as you read the scriptures are when they are out of sync with God's calling. It's precisely when people said, here's what I think God should do, And then they start walking in that and they make some big mistakes. Or when they just are simply out of sync and God's calling in disobedience. You think of Jonah. He had a very clear call from God. Jonah knew what he was called to do and he said, nope, I'm not going to do that. Huge mistake. We think of a guy like Samson. He had a call on his life to be the hero, the judge of Israel. 
And sometimes he would do that. And then very frequently, he said, I'm going to head down over here. It's not part of your calling to be going over here and marrying a Philistine wife, being going over here and, and joining with harlots, going over here and doing all of this stuff. Big mistakes when he was out of step with his calling. We even think about a guy like David. Now, of course, David made some mistakes, but that's not what I'm necessarily talking about here. David has that famous incident where he says, I'm going to build the Lord a temple. I've decided that that's what God needs to do through my life. And the Lord has to come to him and gently say, no, 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 that's not your calling. I didn't call you to do that. And so I'm telling you, you're not supposed to do that. And David, to his credit, says, you're right. Okay, I won't do it. I'll do everything I can up to that point. I'll make the plan. I'll store up everything. Man, David's a crack up. But it's interesting. Some of the big mistakes or potential missteps in the lives of Bible characters, their lives are written down for our example and for our learning, are when they're out of sync with the calling that God has placed on their lives. Now, in our passage tonight, I believe we see a remarkable example of the apostles showing us how to navigate an unpredictable life, not relying on human reasoning or human methodology, but rather on the leading of the Holy Spirit. And what I think they show us tonight is a powerful dedication to their calling. They knew what they were called to do, and they were focused on that. And in the meantime, while being focused on that, they remained flexible and therefore were able to adapt to whatever situation they found themselves in. And they very frequently found themselves in crazy, wild situations. And they were flexible, but focused on what God had called them to do. And so let's begin. Verse 12 of chapter 5. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. By common consent, they would all meet in Solomon's colonnade. Why is it that the beginning of the church age here was so full of miracles, whereas today they seem so few and far between? Many Bible commentators, if you get into commentaries, which would be great, uh, you'll get to a passage like this, and they will say that the signs and wonders, really their purpose was primarily or wholly to uh, validate the message of the apostles, that since there was no Bible that people could hand out, no, no Gideons to hand out Bible in the, in the hotel rooms, right? Since there wasn't a New Testament finished up yet, their message needed to be validated by God. And so God said, okay, well, I will work signs and wonders through the apostles so that their message would be validated. And these commentators will say that once the apostles died and once the New Testament was complete, there was no longer any need for miracles. And that they also lump in some of the sign gifts that Paul will talk about later in the New Testament. And in fact, many of these commentators, great guys, we love them, they love the Lord, we're going to see them in heaven one day, but they say that there aren't miracles anymore since we have the completed Word of God. Don't expect them. There's, there's, yes, I suppose God could work a miracle, but He doesn't. And so that's all done because the miracles here were just to validate the message of these apostles. There are a couple of problems with this perspective. First of all, it requires us to completely reject the countless reports of miraculous work throughout church history up through the present day, connected in any way with any modern evangelical missions organization. You are regular, get, regularly getting reports of the miraculous in your inbox, right, or in your mailbox. As these people report, this is what God did, and, and bring a report of, of real, actual, miraculous, wonderful works of God in other parts of the world, all over the world. And so uh, we can't just wholesale and say, yeah, none of that's real. All that's fake. You made that all up. 
and, and not just you, but everybody throughout church history for 2,000 years now, that's, that's not real. That's not genuine. That's made up. The supernatural is taking place in many parts of the world. The other problem with this perspective is that we see later in Acts there were Christians who were not apostles working signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. Stephen's one of them. He's not an apostle. He's not one of the 12. And we're going to find that he works signs and wonders. So if the only real purpose of the miracles in Acts was to validate the message of the 12, then why would non-apostles be given the gifts of, of working miracles from time to time? So it's a problem of perspective. So the question, though, is why then don't we still see miracles working as much through the church as we did then? It seems clear to us that God can and does still work miracles through his people, but we can't deny that they are much fewer than what we read about here in Acts 5. And the reasoning why, you know, we have a couple of good biblical reasons. First of all, it seems to be God's pattern to pour out many more miracles at certain points of redemptive history. For example, when Joshua led the Israelites into Canaan to take hold of the land, it was the beginning of a new thing, right? And miracles were a big factor of that new thing. Walls were falling down. The sun was standing still in the sky. Now, fast forward to King David. If you, on a piece of paper, are saying who is more influential in the plan of God, Joshua or David, I think we have to say David, right? He's in the line of the Messiah. He has his own covenant. <laughs> there is no Joshua covenant. There's a Davidic covenant. And yet, look at his experience as he is leading the Israelites to expand and establish the kingdom. No miracles. Sure, he overcomes uh, Goliath, but that's not the sun standing still in the sky. That's not the walls of Jericho falling down. We don't see miracles pouring through the life of David. And then you move forward a few hundred years, and what happens? We enter the time of the prophets, a new thing that God is doing, working through prophets in a new way. And suddenly what happens? Miracles start pouring out of these prophets, right? And so there are other examples as well. It seems, as we look at the Bible, that when God starts doing a new thing in his program, he, is, uh, he gives more miraculous uh, activity at the start. And then as that time progresses, there's less miraculous activity. Another factor of why we maybe see fewer miracles now than we did then is that we know from the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament that in this church age, God's plan is generally to show his strength in our weakness. That's God's plan in general, to show his strength in your weakness and in my weakness, to show his power in our suffering and in our endurance. We may not love that idea, but that's his idea. We're told here that the Christians were still meeting there in the temple complex, despite the warning and the pressure they had received from the Sanhedrin. They were undeterred. They had a unified courage. They weren't going to move locations. That's where they were meeting. Verse 13, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people praised them highly. The rest here, many scholars believe, refer to unbelievers. There's a little bit of a question. Who are they talking about? Is it that the church, the regular church members who were not the apostles, were they afraid after the Ananias and Sapphira incident 
and, and so they didn't want to hang out with the apostles anymore. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case at all as we read the context of this passage. Plus, if that was the case, they wouldn't need to meet in the temple complex. They could just meet in a home and or in an upper room. The whole point of them meeting in a complex is that there were thousands of Christians, right? And they needed a big space to do their teaching and to do uh, their services. And so we believe this refers to unbelievers. The sense is that in the wake of the incident with Ananias and Sapphira, there were no posers trying to saddle up to the church and just fake it. Oh, I'm a Christian too. Are you? Because you might die today. So there, were, there weren't a lot of uh, fake Christians at this point in the church. Now, one other possible translation is this, and of the Levites, none dared to prevent them from holding meetings in the temple. The apostles were not only seen as men of great power, they were also esteemed here as men of integrity and righteousness, and they were. They were men of integrity. Uh, They were men who were circumspect in the way that they did things. They weren't fakers. They weren't hypocrites. They practiced what they preached. Even those who didn't believe could see that. Hey, that's a man of integrity. I don't want to have anything to do with him, but that's a man of integrity. They lived out their Christianity faithfully. Verse 14, believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, crowds of both men and women. More than ever, multitudes of people were being born again into the family of Christ, added to the Lord. The language here is a good reminder that the goal of our ministry and our evangelism is not to add people to a cause, not to add people to a particular group, but that they be added to the Lord and his forever family. Now, we gather together as a particular group. The local church is established by Jesus. It's a great thing. It's a needful thing. We all need to be connected to a local church all the time. But the ultimate goal of ministry, the ultimate goal of the Great Commission, we want to remember, is to add people to the Lord. Not to my pet project, not to a particular leader, but to the Lord. Now, we would love to see crowds of people here in Hanford rushing together to give their lives to Jesus. We would love to be a part of genuine awakening and revival. That's not what's happening right now. It just isn't, right? Well, then what should we do to make that happen? What, what can we do to, to, to bring revival? Well, here's a question. What did the apostles do to make it happen? Nothing. Nothing. They didn't do anything to make it happen. They weren't even trying to make it happen. We don't even have indication that they were praying for it to happen. Now, I'm not against praying for revival or praying for awakening. We should pray for that. But do we see the apostles doing any of that? We just don't. They simply were doing what they had been doing even before Pentecost happened, right? Meeting together, teaching God's word, praying, worshiping. That's what they did. The apostles weren't working any kind of program to make revival happen. They weren't holding a series of meetings to stir up people. They they just weren't. They were faithful and available and sticking to what they had been told to do. And it was the Lord who was adding to his church. And so we want to pray for those things and invite the Lord. Hey, Lord, we want to be a part of that. We, we wish that you would do that. Lord, our, our country and our state and our city, we need revival. We need another great awakening like America has experienced in her history. Let's pray for that. Let's hope for that. Let's wish for that. Let's expect God to do something like that. But if the question is, what can we do to make revival happen? It's the wrong question. You can't make revival happen. I can't make revival happen. If I make it happen, then it's fake, right? And it's not revival. It's just some sort of cultural phenomenon. The apostles weren't doing anything to make this happen. They were just there living out their faith and being used by God as he saw fit. Verse 15 
As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a large group came together from the town surrounding Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, commentators disagree over whether Peter's shadow was actually healing people. It says that they did this, that they brought them out so that his shadow would pass over them, but some of them say, but of course... That's superstition. Of course, none of those people were actually healed. On the other hand, right, uh, verse 16 could vary as you read it all together. There's no chapter and verses when Luke wrote this letter to Theophilus. If you read it all together, it seems like you could, what we call verse 16, would lump in verse 15, right, where it says they all were healed. Now, listen, this is strange But let's say that it was true that his shadow, as it passed by people, was effectively healing them. It's not unheard of even in the Bible. In Acts 19, we'll find that some of Paul's handkerchiefs were successfully being used to heal the sick and cast out demons. Luke says so outright. So Paul was working as a tent maker. Someone was coming in. I'll, I'll tell you this right now. Paul was not like sending out his handkerchiefs. So somebody was coming in snatching his handkerchiefs probably selling them, who knows, but getting those handkerchiefs and like, and, and you know, you had, you were in the marketplace and you were getting some sweaty, dingy, you know, Paul handkerchief. And it said that those handkerchiefs were being placed on people and they were healed of their sicknesses and demons were being cast out. And so it's not unheard of for Peter's shadow to have been effective. I guess you just hope for a sunny day. If it was, you know, if it was cloudy that day and wasn't casting shadow, you had a problem if you were sick, but it's very interesting. Now, the things that stand out to me from this little section here is that first, we are seeing the first overflow out of Jerusalem. Yeah, in Acts 2, you had people from all over the kingdom because of the feast and all of that, but here we're starting to see the gospel flow outward, right, out of Jerusalem. The story of Christ's church is spreading, and in just a few short years, it will have reached the far corners of the empire, and it continues to grow and spread today. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel, nothing. Not war, not famine, not catastrophe, not persecution, not hypocrisy. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. The gates of hell can't prevail against Jesus Christ's church. But second, and this is more to the point of us living out our callings tonight. This whole situation with Peter's shadow reveals the fact that he was not stopping to heal these people. At least on some of these days, they brought him out, he kept walking. Right? I'm sure they were calling out to him, Peter, please heal me, heal me. You're the miracle worker, heal me. And he kept walking. Now, what's that about? Uh, this is kind of surprising behavior, if you ask me, if you're a miracle worker and you're just walking by these people. But even though Peter was clearly flexible to be used by God in unusual ways as he was prompted, though he was sensitive to opportunities, like when the crippled man was healed at the beautiful gate, right? He didn't see himself as a miracle worker. If you asked Peter what his calling was, he would have said, that's not my job. My job is to be a witness. And I know that that's true because he says it over and over again in this section of the book. In Acts 1-8, Jesus told them what? He says, you're going to be my witnesses. And it's very clear that Peter really took that to heart. That's what his calling was as far as he was concerned. That's what he was about. Acts one twenty two. he says, hey, everybody, we need someone to replace Judas to become a witness with us. 
He says in verse 25 of that chapter that that is the apostolic service, to be a witness. Later in Acts 2.32, he identifies himself. He says, I'm a witness of the resurrection in his very first sermon. He says, that's who I am. He does so again in Acts 3.15. He says, I'm a witness. He'll do so again in Acts 5.32. If you ask Peter, he would have said, I'm called to be a witness. I'm not called to be a miracle worker. I'm not even called to be a church planner. I'm called to be a witness as God leads me through my life. That's my job. And so he was flexible, but he was focused on living out that calling. And so when revival is breaking out or when miracles start happening or when persecution hits, we don't see Peter saying, okay, well, we got to change up the program and we got to do this and we got to do that. What's a new method and what's a new thing that we can do? Let's pivot here. Let's do this. Let's do this other thing. This guy has an idea. He doesn't do any of that. He just keeps walking, sometimes past people who ask for ministry. He's just walking in his calling. And sometimes that meant passing people by who were there for a healing. And still the Lord used him, but he's walking in his calling and he's confident in his calling. He says, hey, I am a witness. And that doesn't mean that everybody's a witness. We, we see that, what is Paul? Paul is sent out to the wider world and Paul's planting churches. Do you ever think it's a little bit strange that Peter planted no churches as far as the book of Acts is concerned and Paul planted so many? It's not strange. It's just that God called one to one thing and another to another thing. Just like he calls you to something and me to something. And so it's really interesting in the meantime, we see that God did not need the scheming or the marketing or the brand development to get the word out about his church. People were coming from outside Jerusalem now, from the towns around them, without the apostles going on tour or buying ad space or starting a viral marketing campaign. We also note some powerful realities about Christianity here, Christianity itself. We are seeing in this text that Christianity actually makes a difference in the lives of believers. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just something academic that we mentally agree to. It actually makes a difference. And we see it works for anyone. It works for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're healthy or sick. It doesn't matter if you're from this town or another town. It doesn't matter if you're from the first century or the 21st century. Christianity is just as real and just as powerful and just as life-changing as ever. It works in Jerusalem. It works in Rome. It works in Hanford. It works in San Francisco. Real Christianity crosses every boundary. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you're from. Jesus Christ cuts through all of that and can work in any culture, in any time, in any place. Verse 17, then the high priest took action. He and all his colleagues, those who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. How did Luke get this insider information about their jealousy? We don't know. Was it a word of knowledge? Maybe. Maybe a whistleblower came forward and gave him an interview. You never know. I'm sure their jealousy was obvious, though these guys kind of wore their sin on their sleeve, right? But here we see that they were jealous of the influence that the apostles had over the people. Remember the Sadducees, they didn't care about the supernatural. They didn't recognize life after death or they thought God's not involved with the world anymore. What do they care about so-called miracles? They didn't even recognize them. They were jealous that the apostles had influence over people, but it's really just that they were being held captive by the devil who was making new moves against the church. The apostles weren't wielding any influence. Do you see the apostles doing anything with their so-called influence? They're not doing anything. They're just ministering. They're just teaching the word and praying and worshiping God. They weren't seeking followers for themselves. They weren't trying to win elections or take power. 
They, you know, it's, oh, we're so jealous of all this influence they have. And Peter's like, yeah, I walk by people who want to talk to me. I don't have time for that. I'm going to pray, right? It's interesting. But it's a, a sad picture of what the devil does to people who are outside of Christ. And those who are not in Christ are held captive by the devil to do his will. The high priest had had enough. Verse 18, so they arrested the apostles and put them in the city jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple complex and tell the people all about this life. With all the miracles going on and all the work being accomplished, why didn't God just not allow them to be arrested? That happened in the life of Jesus, right? There's that incident where it says they came to arrest Jesus and he just passed through the crowd and they couldn't get him. Why didn't that happen again? Or why did these men, these apostles who were casting out demons and healing the sick and all this powers working through them, they're doing all kinds of signs and wonders, why did they need an angel to come and get them out? After all, didn't Moses hold up his own hands and the sea was parted? And hold up his hands again and the sea was joined together? You know, as we investigate the story here, there doesn't seem to be a lot of rhyme or reason to why this and not that. We don't know. Why did God send an angel? and then at another time send an earthquake. We don't know. The truth is, in the Bible, sometimes God leaves people in jail, sometimes he sets them free. Sometimes he uses an angel, sometimes he uses an earthquake. Sometimes people are healed, sometimes he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes we want to go to Asia and God says, no, you're going to Macedonia. Sometimes you want to build a temple and says, yeah, no, you just can't. You're not allowed. And this is why it's absolutely essential that we be filled with the Holy Spirit and know what God has called us to do. What has God called you to do? Paul explained to the Corinthians this, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And he said, now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. And so we need to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. And so here, the apostles aren't making a plan about what they should do. They're not planning a defense for when they stand in court. They're not scheming. They're not trying to help God out with what he should decide to do in this situation. Throughout this passage, they're silent. This whole section, they're not saying anything. Of course, they were saying things, but as far as Luke is concerned, they're silent as God moves them along through these situations. They're simply walking with God consistently. They're being full of the Spirit. And so now the angel turns them loose. And what does he say to them? He says, go keep doing what you've already been doing. Go do what you've been called to do. Go preach in the temple about the life of Christ. And we note that the angel encourages them to not just preach part of the message, the parts that are popular or palatable or make for good headlines, but to preach all the words of the gospel, all the words of the Christian life. Verse 21, in obedience to this, they entered the temple complex at daybreak, began to teach. Hold there. I don't know what hours uh, of operation the temple had. I like went to like three stores today because I thought they would open at seven, but all of them opened at eight. So I don't know what time the temple opened, but it seems they went in right away, right? As soon as they could daybreak. Now, I'm not sure how many people were coming to the temple at dawn to bring their sacrifice. So I'm guessing that their very first audience that morning was made up of just priests and Levites, which is pretty cool. We know from chapter six of the book that many priests were getting saved during this period, thanks to the willingness of the Christians to preach to them. And so here's the deal. The apostles were just doing what they were called to do. 
Commentators and Bible teachers frequently criticize the apostles for not taking the gospel out to Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world fast enough. And they suggest that God had to send violent persecution on his bride, thanks, uh, because the Christians were doing such a bad job getting the word out. And so then the, you know, God you know, slapped his bride across the face and scattered her out to the west of the world. About time you got out of here. You think Jesus treats his wife like that? I don't. But anyway, you, you, that's, that's what comes up as you read the commentaries. But that's not what we're seeing here at all. The message was spreading. Crowds and multitudes of people were being saved more than other. Other towns are getting word. Heaven was breaking through in all sorts of miraculous signs and wonders, so much so that even a shadow could be effective in healing people. And the apostles are being faithful to their calling. Jesus had called them to be witnesses, and that's what they were doing. The angel said, go back in the temple and preach, and that's what they did. Along the way, they were ready to respond and be used in unusual situations as the Spirit led them into them. They were focused but flexible, and the results were wonderful as God moved. So what about us? What should we be doing? Well, what are you called to do? We find our general callings in God's word, things that we're all commanded to be a part of as Christians. We're all commanded to be knit together. We're all commanded to show love. We're all commanded to preach the word. We're all commanded to praise the Lord, right? There are general callings that we all enjoy. But God also has a specific calling for your life. And I can't tell you what that is. The Holy Spirit can, and he wants to. Your job is to discover it and then answer that call. And then what God does with you in your midst is his business. No matter what it is, it's going to be great because it's of the Lord. And you know, it probably won't be what we would have predicted or planned for ourselves, at least not all of it, because God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His plans are much better than our plans. If you pay attention to pop culture at all, you've probably heard more than a few things about Kanye West, the rapper, his recent conversion and his new album, which is titled Jesus is King. It's kind of a big deal in pop culture right now for obvious reasons, especially if you know anything about Kanye West. (laughs) A lot of people are talking about it, not just around the water cooler and not just on Christian outlets, but on NBC News, Time Magazine, Jimmy Kimmel Live. It's a big topic in popular culture right now. Now, I don't have anything to say about Kanye West uh, or his album. Here's what I find interesting. What I find interesting is where this started. Because all over the country, we have people talking about this and Christianity, and there's a big spotlight on this issue right now. And here's what happened. Somebody who works for Kanye West, one of his employees at one point suggested, you should go to church. In fact, you should come to my church. And eventually... Kanye West did that. He took him up on that invitation. And for a couple of weeks in a row, he slipped into the service at a church, a little church in Santa Clarita. It's not a hip church. It's not a cool church. It's not a big church. It meets on the campus of Masters University. Uh, The sources I found said the church is maybe 400 people. And the pastor there preached the gospel. And Mr. West went a couple times in a row. And on, I think it said, the third time that he was there, he waited till after service and went and talked to the pastor said, I have some questions. And they had a conversation about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. And then they had another conversation the next week and then another. And then he started meeting with his pastor weekly. 
And now the entire nation is having this conversation about Jesus Christ. Now, I think that's pretty cool. Without commenting on the particulars, yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going on in Kanye West's heart, and neither does anybody else, heart, you know, anybody else. But I think it's pretty cool that the popular culture is talking about this. The pastor, as far as I know, did not go into a meeting and say, how can we get people talking about Jesus Christ from coast to coast? I know, let's get a celebrity in here in our little church. That'll, that's the ticket. Who knows Kanye West? That didn't happen. Rather, it seems that the Christians there at Placerita Bible Church were just doing what they always did. They're doing what God called them to do. And, and the Lord unpredictably decided to use them for something that we could never have planned, that we could never have orchestrated, that we could never have anticipated or predicted, right? And so we're to walk in our calling according to God's leading. That's the deal. Systems cannot replace or anticipate what God might want to do, but the Spirit will show us as we follow him and focus ourselves on answering the call he's given us while we stay flexible to whatever God might want to do in our here and now. Amen?